Welcome to Raising OKC Kids, Conversations with Metro Family in Oklahoma City. I'm Erin Page, and today I am joined by Dr. Helen Hadani and Rachel Katz to talk about strategies for raising self-aware, cooperative, and well-balanced kids, which sounds like a dream to this mom of three. Welcome, Helen and Rachel. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Before we, get, to be here. before we get started, I want to tell our listeners a little bit more about each of you. Dr. Helen Hadani and Rachel Katz are authors of the new book, The Emotionally Intelligent Child, which we will dive into during our conversation today. Rachel teaches social and emotional learning skills to parents and children. She has more than 25 years experience as an early childhood educator and school leader. In addition to working in school settings, she has also created and written television for Nick Jr. and Radio Television Hong Kong, and was a consultant for educational programs at Children's Television Workshop. Helen is a fellow at the Brookings Institution, where she conducts policy-focused research on the benefits of playful learning. An expert in early childhood and creativity development, she has more than 20 years of experience in research and education settings and has worked with toy, media, and technology companies, including Disney, Sesame Workshop, Apple, Lego, Fisher-Price, and Mattel. I'd love to start our conversation today with the foundation for your new book, The Emotionally Intelligent Child. So will you first define emotional intelligence for us? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Erin. Um, well, emotional intelligence is really being aware of our feelings, our thoughts, our behaviors, and our relationships so that we can make wise choices about how we respond to different experiences and interactions. Um, another important component of this is really knowing how your body and mind work together to, to perform tasks and solve problems and really allow us to feel comfortable with ourselves and connected to others. So when we talk about this in, you know, in relation to children and development, it's really about sort of planting these seeds of awareness so that children understand that their thoughts and feelings can often be connected to a physical sensation. So for example, if they're feeling nervous, there might be some kind of tension they feel in their body somewhere, right? And the combination of these things really allows them to um, sort of dictate how they'll react. And if they can tune into and start to understand some of those, you know, thoughts and feelings, and again, those physical sensations in their body, then they'll be sort of more able to react intentionally versus impulsively to a situation or an experience. That's so helpful. Thank you so much for setting that stage for us. And as you're talking, I'm thinking how much I as a parent <laughs> need to work on those skills as well. So before we can even begin to teach this concept to our kids, how do we as parents learn to be emotionally intelligent and consider our kids' behaviors through the lens of their developmental stage? What does this actually look like in everyday practice in our homes? Um, 
I'll, I'll answer that one. Um, as a parent, it really requires working on your own emotional intelligence, as you mentioned. Um, it's just the ability to understand how we're feeling emotionally then helps us to understand actually what we're modeling for our children. And so, you know, if I put, if I talk about uh, development, child development, our children are developing and understanding the world around them, primarily looking and watching how other people respond to things. And because, you know, the parent, the primary caregiver is usually with their child, the child is looking to you to see how you're responding. And that's going to help them to understand, engage how to respond to a similar situation when they're not with you or what it looks like to respond to that situation. And in saying that, I don't want to put any pressure on a parent because it's really hard. It's super hard. I get it. I'm a parent. Oh my goodness. I make more mistakes. I have more sort of bad days than I have good days. <laughs> but just knowing that you have a, you know, by building your emotional intelligence, knowing that you can actually sort of pause between feelings and those sensations that you have and what you're thinking and reacting and sort of check into yourself and say, I'm a model now. <laughs> Someone's watching me. Like, what am I modeling? What am I showing? You know, so in that regard, that, that pause between thoughts and feelings and reactions, so important. I'm so glad you said that because uh, I, that does feel like a lot of pressure <laughs> as a parent that, you know, these little people are watching every move I make and they are gonna emulate what they're seeing from me. So thank you for that affirmation that none of us are doing this perfectly. It's a learning process. I think as parents, we feel like we're supposed to have all these things figured out, right? And and it's nice to hear from an expert that it's okay for us to be learning alongside our kids. Oh my goodness. I think that that is emotional intelligence. There you said it, that you are learning alongside with your child and your child knows, oh my goodness, my mom makes mistakes or my caregiver makes mistakes and look at how they respond to the mistake and look at how they come back to me and maybe apologize or look at how they come back to me and re-paraphrase, reframe how they were feeling. So the moment doesn't have to be perfect. It's just pulling back and reflecting, is there anything that I needed to do different? Did I model something that feels a little like I'd like to re-explain to my child or go back. And you always have this time. And that's building. I mean, when we talk about emotional intelligence, we look about individual intelligence, but we're also looking at social intelligence and that relationship building. And so you're modeling again that relationships, you know, are are just evolving all the time over time and with care and love and understanding and saying, oops, I made a mistake. I'm sorry you're modeling, you know, social and emotional intelligence for your child. I feel so much better already, Rachel. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. Um, okay, so as we, as parents are working on our own emotional intelligence, how do we go about this process of helping our kids build their emotional intelligence beyond the modeling? 
what what are the benefits for our kids and what can this look like? What are those teaching moments look like at varying developmental stages? Yeah, so I'll start and then uh, this is Helen and I'll, I'll turn it over to Rachel, but just wanted to talk a little bit about one of the areas of development and research that we talk about in our book, The Emotionally Intelligent Child, which um, it's a really prolific area of research called theory of mind, um, really prolific area of research in, in academia, but maybe doesn't really get out to, you know, this information is not really easily accessible to, you know, parents and educators. And so that's why we really wanted to talk about it in the book. And this area is called theory of mind. And it's really about understanding, you know, an, an individual's understanding of their own and others what we call mental states, which are, you know, everything that's going on in our, in our head, our thoughts, our intentions, our beliefs, our desires, and how those really drive our actions and behaviors and that important link. So just talking a little bit, you know, from a developmental perspective for toddlers, for example, you know, young children actually come to understand and notice that people have different desires. They have different likes right? And they come to understand what happens when those desires are fulfilled or not. So they would understand that somebody is sad or disappointed if they don't get something that they want, right? And a big milestone there is actually recognizing that other people may not like the same things that you do, right? And that's actually a big, a big thing. So they can understand that like if their friend happens to like a different flavor ice cream, then that's the kind of ice cream that they're going to want, right? And not maybe the same as, as them. So, you know, pretty young that happens. And then as children get older in the preschool age, then it's sort of coming to understand what they believe about something in the world may be different actually from reality. So we call this, this is something called a false belief, right? So that if, if, if we think that, you know, our ball is actually in the garage, but it's actually we left it out in the yard, where are we going to look? We're going to look in the garage because that's where we think it is, even if that's different from reality. So again, these sort of subtle things and knowing when and how these develop. Um, and then I'll just give one more example. In, in sort of early elementary age children, that's when kids start to realize that they can actually hide their feelings and their thoughts from other people, right? And so this is, um, you know, this is when they might act you know, happy that they got socks for their birthday, but actually, you know, they're, they're feelings kind of differently on the inside, right? And that's a pretty big revelation that they can actually sort of hide their feelings um, from other people. And, and so I, I'm going to turn it over to Rachel now to talk more about sort of like, you know, what are the benefits of being um, sort of emotionally and, and, and socially intelligent? And what does research tell us about about that? Thanks, Helen. Okay, so let's take where Helen left off. We're at the elementary age and um, all of a sudden you realize, oh my goodness, like I have this inner world. I have these internal thoughts and these feelings and I don't have to share them with anybody. And I can also use my language skills because I've been learning language. I've been listening. You know, I know how to talk now. I know how to interact with language. I can use these skills to fool people. So all of a sudden you see this incredible convergence of development where theory of mind and you're like, wow, I have this rich internal world with this 
social development of, I use language to connect to people and I can tell them what I want to tell them <laughs> and I can fool them. So that's like when you start, there's something really interesting that happens in development. A lot of times our child then starts to tell little fibs. And as a parent, because you don't know this development or you're not really thinking about this development, you feel like, oh my goodness, I've raised a child that doesn't tell the truth. And you're just shocked. You're mortified. And then you come down hard on your child and you, you have to tell the truth. But really, when you pull the lens back and you say, oh my gosh, my child has just made the developmental leap to be able to recognize and hear their inner voice and then plan how they're going to use their thoughts and their feelings and their ideas that they're having inside, how they're going to plan to communicate what's going on. And so if you think of it that way, it's super exciting. Then you get to say, I wonder where my child is developmentally, as opposed to, oh my gosh, I'm a bad parent, right? Because developmentally they're going, oh, I can actually play with language and nobody knows how I'm feeling inside, as opposed to what did I do wrong, right? So that's a big difference. And then if we, if we go a little bit further down the developmental road, as our children get older, the other thing that happens is that they realize they have this stream of conscious thinking. Like all of a sudden, developmentally, we get the fact that, you know, before your child was looking at someone and they weren't thinking that their mom or their friend is always thinking also. And they're not attuned to the fact that every person that's walking around and near them and interacting has their own internal world happening in parallel, in tandem with their world. And then developmentally, boom, the ball drops and they're like, oh my gosh, every person around me can do the same thing that I can do. You know, they can map out their internal world. They can use language to fool others. And then sort of the game gets a little bit bigger, right? And it's, it's this knowing that they have this stream of conscious thinking is the time where you can really talk to your child about things like compassion and empathy. Because when we look at our friends who are crying and your child understands now that there's the stream of conscious thinking, yes, a very young child can look at someone who's crying and go, oh, they're sad but they're not gonna ponder because developmentally they don't have the capability to ponder why may they be sad? Did they have an experience in the past that made them sad? So they're just, so now you, you, know, you look at an older child and you can say they have the language ability to say, yes, they're sad. Now they have the ability to go, I wonder what they're thinking and feeling. I wonder what happened in the past that made them think and feel this way. I wonder what they're anticipating in the future that's making them feel maybe this way. And so the whole, that stream of conscious thinking, that ability to, it's called in, in our circles and telling in our circles of development, it's called the interpretive theory of mind, where now you can try to start to interpret what the inner world of someone else feels like. And then we as parents and, and caregivers and people that work with children can start to say, we have the opportunity now to be compassionate to others. 
we have the opportunity now to be empathetic towards others. Let's imagine what their inner world might be like by comparing it to past experiences that you've had in your inner world and your landscape. And let's think what we can do for this other person. How compassionate, how kind, how loving, and how caring can we react to this other person who's going through something? And that's, again, the building blocks for emotional intelligence. This is so fascinating. And I feel like so many light bulbs are going off in my mom brain right now. Um, but what I love is when parents have this deeper understanding that you all are sharing with us about where our kids are developmentally, that adjusts our expectations of what our kids can and cannot do. Or for a mom like me who has, I have my youngest is six, my oldest is 11. This really helps me remember they're at very different places developmentally and I cannot expect the same things or to even have the same kinds of conversations with both of them. Um, and, and the other thing I really love that you said and that we will dive into a little bit more is approaching as a parent our kids' behaviors with more of an attitude of curiosity and less of, you know, consequences um, or, or being upset with the behavior that results from it. So thank you again for setting that stage. That's just incredibly helpful to kind of reframe how we're approaching our kids. May I just say, I, I, I really appreciate what you shared. And let me just say, um, I, I love the fact that you brought up that there are two children in the home and that there are different ages. And that's really important to think about. Um, and again, remember, we are not, you. I'm not here to say there's a perfect parent because there is not a perfect parent at all. Um, and when you're with your two kids, and let's say you're responding to one child's behavior in the moment and the other child is watching you. If the younger child who doesn't have that same, isn't on the same place of development, they're just watching and they're interpreting for their developmental level. So there's nothing really that you need to panic about with either child. There's no need to panic with any of this. It's just about thinking, what are the seeds that I'm planting right now? Because if your child doesn't understand or developmentally, they're not capable of understanding something of, of what you're trying to say. You're, they're understanding something. You're planting the seeds of awareness. And that's really the best thing that you can do. I'm also going to be writing down, don't panic. <laughs> I need to be reminded of that very often. Um, Let's talk more about social emotional learning. I know for me as a mom, I, a silver lining of the pandemic has been that my kids' schools and teachers are really incorporating social emotional learning into their everyday lives. But how do we as parents support and continue that same kind of focus on social emotional learning at home? Um. I'll, I'll take this, I'm Rachel. Um, so just because this is what I spend a lot of time doing and thinking about, you know, the, really, if you, if you know that your school is teaching some social emotional learning or they have a program that they're using, um, most often the school might have a training night or something on Zoom or they'll send something home, pay attention to, you know, what they're telling you. 
um, find out what the name of the program is. If you have time, I know we're all busy parents, but if you do have a moment to just sort of check out what are the fundamental principles of this social emotional learning program that the school is offering, read about it, and then certainly ask questions about um, is go in to speak with the school or, you know, when you have time with the teacher, you can just say, are there things, is there language that I can use? Or, and are there skills that you're teaching my child about, you know, pausing, impulsivity, control, you know, talking kindly, so that I can use those same skills and the same language at home. Because when there's that consistency, it, can children really thrive on consistency? So when there's that consistency of language and that consistency of um, uh, using the same tools um, for, let's say, um, you know, behavior modification, that kind of thing, your child, you know, it's just easier to do it. And if there's, if there's, if the school, there's not a program available, you know, our, in our book, we wrote the book specifically to say, all right, the first part of the book of the emotionally intelligent child, the first part is teaching about the development. And then the second part, we give you an actual working framework for how to use this emotional intelligence to build it for yourself as a parent and also to teach it to your child, but to teach it to your child at the developmental level that they're at. And it's called the mind framework. And the M stands for mindfulness. So it's taking time to observe your thoughts and feelings without immediately reacting. And we actually teach you how to do that. And then we teach, we teach you how to teach your child how to do that. We discuss inquiry, the I and mind, where you know, you're really learning to pay attention to what the child is saying. And then instead of responding and telling, you learn how to ask so that you're using inquiry to sort of get a deeper sense of your child's world and their feelings and not necessarily telling them how to feel. Then we have non-judgment. And again, this is the part that we as parents need when we feel so bad about what we've done or what we said or reacting impulsively. And we really talk about some ways to shift from blame, shame, um, you know, th those kinds of things that really make us feel bad into just sort of saying, okay, let's look at this really objectively uh, and then decide. So the D is the big one where once you're, you know, you've paused and, you know, you have a moment to really think, how am I going to respond? We really teach you not only about the non-reactivity, but the timeliness and we look at the timeliness in relation to what your child is doing. Are they really tired? What was their day like? Is this the right time for you to be going in and having a teaching moment with your child? Or is it best saved for you know bedtime or three days from now? You know, you don't always have to respond immediately to your child. There's some things where you can pause and then ask yourself when is the right time so that d for decide is pretty helpful so the book again to say if there's not a program at your school our book was designed to sort of be a home program if you will like a parent child program yeah and just to, to follow up quickly on on all that rachel said you know she mentioned that in the book it's divided into two um sections so in part one is really about 
you know, we really wanted to share and make accessible some important research that we think, you know, would be useful to parents and educators around the topics of theory of mind, language development, executive function, and sort of family culture. And then in the second part of the book is when we introduce and talk about this mind framework that Rachel just talked about. And it's really taking that knowledge, um, you know, that we, we shared in part one and putting it into practice in terms of the mind framework. So that's sort of the connection between the two parts of the book. But yeah, just to reiterate what Rachel said, the mind framework is really, you know, designed for both parents and children to use sort of this, these same techniques to build social and emotional intelligence. What I love so much about that format is I think um, as parents, maybe especially as moms, we are always ready to jump in. How do I do the thing? How do I fix the thing? But when we stop and really understand our child's developmental stage, when we understand the research that you all are discussing kind of behind the why of those actions, um, I, I feel like for me as a mom, that always makes more of an impression on me and um, just gives me that better framework to work within. Helen, I was thinking about how you were talking about younger kids learning about that their friends have different likes than they do. And my six-year-old brought home some papers the other day where, you know, they were all marking their favorite colors. And so we were having a discussion about, oh yeah, not everybody likes green as much as you do. So hearing you talk about that developmental stage and what that means for, you know, what kinds of information and conversations he's ready for is so incredibly helpful. Um, just, just to be looking, Rachel, like you mentioned, at what they're learning at school, how we apply that then to those developmental stages and, and what, what conversations we can be having with our kids. So all that to say, I love how much you guys have tied all of that together. And I think that's so impactful for us as parents. Another thing I wanna talk about is impulse control. I know how hard this is for our kids. And I mean, let's be honest, it's hard for us as parents too. Um, so tell us more about how having emotional intelligence can encourage those behaviors of self-control and how do we help our kids develop and then practice that trait? Yeah, so I'll, I'll get started on this one. Um, this is Helen and, and talk about impulse control in relation to a sort of a larger set of, of cognitive and social skills called executive function. And then and then turn it over to Rachel to talk about something that we um, that we have in the book called sort of emotional approaches or emotional styles. So it's important to remember that impulse control is one component, one key component of this larger sort of set of cognitive and, and social skills called executive function. And important to remember that executive function really does develop over time with a lot of guidance and scaffolding from caretakers, parents, adult, you know, adults, right? So these are skills that children need to develop over time. So executive function skills really allow us to sort of monitor and control our behaviors and hopefully make really informed and smart decisions. Right. So, um, so the components, the other components of executive function include things like cognitive flexibility, being able to sort of think outside the box, and which is very related to creativity, um, our working memory, and also our focus and attention. So all of those come together 
you know, again, in this suite of skills called executive function and often sometimes referred to as learning to learn skills, right? If you can't pay attention or focus on, you know, what the teacher is talking about or what your peers are doing in a classroom, you're not going to be learning any content, right? You need to be able to have that focus of attention. You need to have that self-control or impulse control to be able to interact with other people, be successful in a classroom setting and, you know, outside the classroom. And it's actually shown a lot of research shows that executive function is really a powerful predictor of children's success in school and in life in general. So children who have strong executive function skills or have that strong foundation then tend to do better in school, have better jobs, don't drop out of high school, you know, think all these predictors. Um, and so while these exec while executive functions often talked about in sort of a more of an academic setting, we emphasize in the book that those skills are really important for social and emotional development as well, right? Because they allow us to participate in conversations. They allow us to collaborate with others, how, you know, even how to take turns, right? So these are, again, essential things for social and emotional development. And they link back to, like you said, impulse control, self-control. We all want to see our kids have that you know, self-control, impulse control, but have to remember that it is a skill that does develop over time, again, with modeling, with, you know, scaffolding and guidance from, um, from parents and caretakers. And so, um, you know, one way to think about impulse control um, is your child's sort of emotional approach or emotional style. And that sort of, that is the intensity with which um, they may respond to different experiences. So I'm going to turn it over to Rachel to talk more about sort of emotional approaches and how to, you know, talk about that with your child. Oh, thanks, Helen. So um, if we now shift into, okay, now we've thought about impulse control, right? And we've thought about executive function and these incredible suite of skills that, that Helen was talking about. Now we have to say each of us respond to the world really differently right and in our book we call it the emotional approach like when we when we're interacting with someone even when we're interacting with ourselves how, how do we approach things emotionally and we look at some categories of that we look at like there's you know for a child we talk about and this is some of the things we use when we're teaching children we we ask them you know when you walk into a room do you notice, are you aware of, or how can we even become more aware of the energy in that room? What different people are doing? Who, how excited one person looks with the other person? You know, how, how do they look when they're working compared to another friend who might be doing something else? Just paying attention to, for example, like if one person is building a, a, a tower out of blocks and it falls over, what's their emotional approach? You know, so helping your child to just tune into others' responses. So we call that sort of a um, being sort of sensitive to the context. And we talk about, you know, your child's emotional approach to bouncing back from setback. And we look at also your emotional approach to like being, being aware of where your attention and your focus are whether your body is moving a lot or whether you're still in your focused. Uh, we talk about, you know, self-awareness, helping to understand, you know, helping your child to understand that you're, 
that your body is going to, your, is going to send physical sensations to you and those physical sensations, how are they making you react? What kind of choices do you make from those physical reactions? And then another one that I'll talk about is mood, helping your child to understand their mood at the moment, like being aware of, so how, what's happening right now? Are you feeling sad? Are you feeling happy? So to understand that those um, ideas that we've just that I just mentioned, those components help develop your emotional approach. And these things are very, very pliable just because one day, and they're changing all the time. And that's really important for you and your child to know nothing's fixed, nothing's sort of set in stone. And one of the things that we like to do and we suggest in the book with emotional approach is, is you know, let's say you're talking about resilience and you notice that your child just keeps getting upset when they try the same thing. Going back to that idea of being timely, maybe you have some time and you and your child are quite calm and you want to, your child keeps trying to build a tower or something with a Lego, for example, and they're getting frustrated. You can go back and you can say, let's take this piece of paper and let's draw some ideas, you know, map it out for your child of what it's going to look like and what it feels like when they're feeling frustrated and draw everything your child says. You don't have to be a good artist. You can just draw stick figures and you can say, okay, this little person's going to represent you, you know, and this is what you were trying to do and tell me about it. And you're sort of recording visually what they're saying. And then you can start that inquiry of, okay, so it didn't work out. What are some choices that you can have? And so again, you have a piece of paper in front of you and you can map out and draw and help them think out loud, but you're helping them to anchor their thinking by using that piece of paper. And you can say, okay, number one, what might you do differently? Or what can you do? Or, you know, and you just map. And so you're helping them to see on paper and plan a way that they might build that emotional approach to resilience, for example. Just, I hope that makes sense. So if you have any questions about that, let me know. That's so powerful. And I love, again, that, you know, I think all of us, Helen, like you mentioned, as parents, want our kids to have impulse control. And this is such a good reminder that that takes time. They have to be at the right developmental stage to be able to learn that. And it takes practice over years for them. It's not something we can just expect them to have. And we have to remember as parents that they're not born with that skill, that, that we've got to be able to practice it with them. And Rachel, I love that idea of helping our kids draw what they're feeling so they can actually see it. And then that's affirmation for them that we understand and are listening to how they're feeling. And then to be able to talk through what the next steps are. So really the foundation here is going back to understanding and acknowledging those feelings before we can expect them to learn how to have impulse control. And the drawing is a way for you and your child to come up with some strategies that your child thinks of. And then you can just say, where should we leave this? And you can tack it in their bedroom or you can tack it on the refrigerator, but keep it around the house so that they see it as a reminder. We have done something kind of similar to that in our household with 
um, my middle kiddo who was just really struggling with some anger um, and kind of not knowing how to how to deal with that or direct it. And so he helped me to make a list of what are some, when you're feeling angry, what does that feel like? And then what are some things that you've noticed that help you? when you feel angry. So he just has this list, um, you know, going, getting on his bike and riding around the cul-de-sac as fast as he can, jumping on the trampoline, um, getting a snack that is really crunchy. Um, and so I love that he, he directed all that. These are the things that help me to feel better when I'm angry. And so now it doesn't have to be a big production. He can just go to where he knows that list is, look through and pick out what he feels like is going to be helpful for him. Um, and we try to make part of that, you know, him being able to name, whether it's to himself or to us, I'm feeling angry right now. Um, so I, I love that because I, I love, and it's been a shift for me. It's a learning process for me, certainly, of giving my kids the ability to direct that instead of me saying, well, here's what you should do when you feel angry. Um, it's been so much more effective to let them direct the process. I love that you, thank you so much for sharing that story. And if you think developmentally, when they direct the process, they're telling you, as you just said, developmentally, exactly where they're at and what they're capable of doing. When we shift into the telling and move away from the asking, we're assuming that our child has the ability to do what we think they can do. And when we shift to the asking, they're telling us, hey, this is what I can do. So here are some strategies that I think will work for me. And then they'll just do those strategies because they can do them. They're developmentally able to do them. And I wish I had had your book when we were going through this process <laughs> several years ago, because I, it's not because it was a brilliant idea on my part. It was because we had literally tried everything else. And at some point it dawned on me, oh, maybe I should ask him. So it's not, it's not an easy mindset shift at all for a lot of parents, for me, certainly, but I have seen how powerful it can be when I really stop and think about it and, and make that shift. Um, I'd love next to walk. Oh, go ahead, Helen. Just quickly, it's just a per it's a perfect application of the mind framework in terms of the eye and inquiry. And so what you did, and so even though you didn't have our book then, you were already putting into practice, I think that that component and other components of the mind framework. So yeah, thanks again for sharing that. that that's really wonderful. And it's really hard to do. <laughs> I don't want anybody listening to think that I just had some brilliant idea. It, it was literally the last resort. So I'm looking forward to moving forward in parenting, thinking of that as a first, the first step instead of my last resort, because um, I know that would help so many things in my household. Um, I'd love next to talk through some common challenges our kiddos might be facing at school and how we as parents can help our kids use your strategies to look at their challenges with curiosity and confidence. So a few examples I'd love you to walk us through. First, if our child is being teased or even bullied at school, how do we help them walk through that? Or if our child has a teacher who they feel like is especially hard on them. Um, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll take that. So this is Rachel. Um, so, you know, 
it's super important for us to remember that our kids are always going to have ups and downs. They're going to have ups and downs with friends. They're going to have ups and downs when they're trying to pursue a hobby or a sport. They're going to have ups and downs with teachers. I mean, this is really just a part of life, right? You know, and this is what it means to relate to others and to relate to yourself. So, and I love, you said earlier, Aaron, that you want to go in and fix things, but really by letting our child know, yeah, these, you know, these, you're, you're, this, these are common experiences. Um, so under helping to understand one that, you know, they're going to have ups and downs and you don't have to fix everything. Um, I'd love to teach you just a little technique that's something that we use. Now, my last example where I mentioned you draw a poster or you do something, the reason developmentally we suggest using objects to represent feelings or to help you to tangibly see what's happening, you know, what you're feeling and to, and to mark it down or to get it down is because children you know, these ideas of feelings are very abstract. They can't see them, you know, they're, and, and, and children are learning about the world through what they see, what they hear, what, you know, what they smell, what they taste. So really physical objects representing and to teach emotional awareness and social, uh, uh, social awareness are great tools. And so in our book, one of the things that we talk about is let's say your child has come home from school and they've had a really bad day or there's some friendship issues and you want to teach them to name and label their feelings. We suggest get a big jar of pom-poms and, you know, you can get them on the internet, you know, like those big, like usually they come in a variety of sizes. So you get a big, pom a big red pom-pom and a little red pom-pom. And you put all these different colors of pom-poms in the jar and you decide with your child, you come home and you have a conversation about their feelings, but you use the pom-poms to represent the feelings. So it might look like this, you know, your child comes home and they're really frustrated and you say, hmm, if you're feeling, you know, it sounds to me like you're feeling frustrated, what color in this jar represents your feelings? And they're going to look through those colors and they're like, ah, oh, it's not green. It's not blue. It's this one. You know, it's the red one, or maybe it's the black one. And you say, wow. And you say, let's pull out that black pom-pom or let's pull out that red pom-pom. Let's use red as an example for anger. And you go, hmm, wow, that's, you know, you're feeling this red, you're feeling this anger. Um, what's the size of it? And, and again, because the pom-poms are two different sizes, they can talk about the intensity of the feeling. And if it's one red, big red pom-pom, you can go, wow. So, you know, was it any bigger than that? And you can look for two big red pom-poms so they can see the size of it. And the moment they start to talk about and actually touch an object to represent their feelings, they're kind of objectifying it. And they're getting it out of their body and out of their system. And they're looking at it in a holistic way. And they're saying, I can actually work with this. Like I am holding my anger now, right? Or you can then, your conversations, once they're familiar with these pom-poms, one of the really interesting things that children discover is that they have many feelings all at once. And that those feelings range in intensity. So I'll have children say, you know, they'll make a giant 
green pom-pom when they're feeling so excited and happy. And then sometimes I've had children will label the purple as a little bit anxious, but they'll also pull out the purple and they'll say a little tiny purple pom-pom and they'll say, but I'm also under all this big excitement, I'm feeling a little nervous. And then you can go, oh, tell me about that little nervousness. And they're holding this tiny little purple pom-pom and they're identifying, oh, there's this, this little bit of thread of attention in my body, something that's making me feel uncomfortable. And you can identify it and talk about it. And then all of a sudden, this conversation has taught you as a parent that they have a whole range of feelings. It's taught your child that there's an intensity to feelings. It's taught you that your child can label their feelings and understand that there are several feelings occurring at one time. And it also lets you and your child know that when you come home or when you're having something going on at home and you both need to pull out that pom-pom jar <laughs> and sit with it and talk about what you're, you know, and go over the feelings and the range of emotions, you have this tool that's separate from you and just a talking dialogue, if you will, a sort of back and forth of how are you doing? What am I doing? You know, there's something fun. Children love novelty. They love newness. They love to touch. They love to explore. And so. That's incredible. I hadn't thought about that piece that you mentioned about them feelings being so nebulous and when they can touch it or see it, how much more concrete that makes it for kids and how much easier it could be for them to have those conversations. That That's incredibly powerful. As we wrap up our conversation today, I'd love for you to share with us your top piece of advice that you want parents to remember to help us have more patience, be less reactive, and hopefully cultivate more joy in our homes. Well, I'll, I'll start and then I'll, I'll turn it over to Rachel. I mean, that's a really, um, that's a really hard question to pick one thing. So, but I think sort of what I'd like to share is that, you know, to remember, and we've, we've talked about this previously that we're always developing and learning, right? Even as adults, right? And to remember that um, no stage is permanent, right? And that's good, you know, that's good news that your kids are always learning and developing and to really use your child's curiosity um, and maybe their endless questions as really inspiration to see the wonder and, and recognize and acknowledge the wonder of their development. Um, and something related to that is really to celebrate the small stuff, right? Like when your child, maybe you see your child help a friend that's sad or, you know, or hurt, right? That's a really powerful example of social and emotional intelligence, you know, recognizing that their friend, you know, needs something and how can they help them? Or if they can talk about, um, you know, a feeling um, or emotion that they were experiencing in a new situation. So like Rachel said, really tying it back to language development and being able to express and talk about and label the feelings that they're experiencing is an incredibly important um, you know, development for social emotional intelligence. So I'll, I'll turn it over to Rachel for her last, her last thoughts. Oh, thanks, Helen. I mean, Helen said pretty much what I would say, but I would add one thing and that's just to roll with patience. 
<laughs> I mean, it's uh, every day is new. Every moment is new. You never know what's coming your way. You never know what's coming your child's way. So just relax, breathe, pause. And there's no perfect. So just enjoy every moment, you know, with patience and curiosity and be forgiving to yourself and be forgiving to your child. So wonderful. Thank you both so much for joining me for this conversation. I feel um, selfishly like I'm getting to walk away with new tools in, in my parenting toolkit and some really important nuance to consider um, as I'm parenting my kids and, and parenting myself through learning more emotional intelligence. So thank you all so much for sharing your expertise with us today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. For our listeners, find more presentations by nationally renowned parenting experts through membership in the Modern Art of Parenting. Visit modernartofparenting.com to learn more about those memberships, which are just $19 a month or $199 for the year with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Join us next time on Raising OKC Kids.